0: Uh, Let's read. Uh, So Mark chapter 11. I'll just pray for our scripture reading too. Lord, just as we read your scripture, I pray that it would have great effect in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that you would use it, Lord, to um, just speak to us of your love for us. And Lord, and just as we see this... great and mighty triumphal entry into Jerusalem Lord all those years ago that today we can celebrate just like they they did all those years ago we love you, amen okay, so Mark 11 verse 1 when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, I have a picture um, of that, I went to Israel last year so this is standing up on the Mount of Olives with all you see the, the Sea of Graves, the Kidron Valley is below there and then Jerusalem, and the what's now the Dome of the Rock and the Temple Mount. Um, and then if you can't, it's hard to see, but in the far corner over here, these two little double gates, it's the eastern gate into Jerusalem where Jesus would have been coming from um, the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley and up into that gate. And it was, it's been opened and closed a few times, but it's been closed now for centuries. Um, and you know one of the reasons is they don't want the Messiah to come, because that's where he'll uh, once again return. And so um, that's just a picture of it. I, you know, when, in seeing it, when I went there for the first time last year, I think there's this, this little thing of like, I, I, I got this picture cause you know, sometimes you just, you know, as you read it, it's just sort of mystical and weird and distant. But when you see it, it's like, to me, it's like sort of standing on the top of Queen Anne and you have the ship canal and then there's Ballard and Fremont right there. You know, it's kind of. Physically speaking, that's sort of like it. I mean, you think this Mount of Olives, it's like Mount Rainier. It's not. It's, it's, it's pretty small. I mean, it really is like looking towards Ballard and Fremont from Queen Anne. And so I just think it's like just having a little view of what that's like. And he would have come down here and the palm leaves. We'll, we'll read about that. But anyway, I just wanted to show you that picture. So <clears throat> Jesus, uh, verse, end of verse 1 here, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They untied it. Some who were standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying this colt? And they told them Jesus what Jesus had said, and they let them go. Now, there's uh, just one thing. And this isn't actually my, my notes, but there's people that kind of explain this, like Jesus had visited Jerusalem and he would have prearranged this. I don't know that that's quite true. I mean, it, it doesn't say that, that he had prearranged this. You know, I think there's this thing that we always want to explain things. Um, you know, Jesus is requisitioning or taking a, a colt, a donkey, to go do this. And I, I think... Why not? There's, there's something about that that I think that is real. Like, he actually did this. And he is, I just think it's, it's something that we'd, we shouldn't really explain away. That's my take on that. But verse 2 tells us this donkey had never been ridden before. Which, generally speaking, they're kind of stubborn animals. Is usually a bad idea, except for Jesus has dominion over all the beasts of the earth. Psalm 8, 6 actually tells us that. You had given him, Psalm 8, 6, you had given him dominion over all the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. So that he, you know, he gets on this donkey, that donkey obeys him. He made this donkey. And I think there's something that's interesting. That actually points to this passage uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, in verse 5, Paul's talking, and he says uh, 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 in regards to Jesus, for it was not enough that angels, that God subjected the world to come, of which we were speaking, it has been testified somewhere. I love even Paul, he just says, somewhere in the scripture it says. It's been testified somewhere. <laughs> I just love that about Paul. Um, what is man that you are mindful of him, That the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting Everything in subjection under his feet. and putting, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. For a little while, who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everything, for everyone, excuse me. For it was fitting that he, for whom and whom, and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I think this is just a wonderful picture of painted throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and the New, in Psalm uh, Psalm eight and in Hebrews two, uh, from both Old and New, that Jesus is using all of creation to accomplish His Father's will. That He is has this. From the beginning, that everything is uh, under subjection to him. And I think there's this little thing in that passage of Paul's. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. You know that this world, as it is, as it works, and as it operates, as as, as it moves, it's not all quite right. But we see him. And I think that's the great thing, that even still, even though you don't see things set right, you know, we see pandemic viruses and we see all sorts of crazy political things and all sorts of things that don't operate like they should, we can see him. We can see him moving in small ways, in big ways, in all sorts of ways around this world. And I just love that, that 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 is happening. And it leads us to this verse 7 here. They brought the cult to Jesus. They throw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, just one other thing here, and I think this is kind of interesting. This fascinates me, but um, you know, in Palestine... The, the donkey was not sort of a despised animal, but a noble one. They, that's not quite the case today. Donkeys are, you know, there's they're just these ugly, weird sort of pack animals. Um, but when a king went to war, he would ride on a horse. And when he came in peace, he would ride on a donkey. So again, you know, that was sort of cultural then. Today we really know nothing of that. And there's this, uh, a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton, he wrote a poem and I have the poem on a slide here, I think. I believe I do. Do you have it on a slide, Moses? <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> this is this poem from him, and it's about this donkey. And I think it's, it's sort of, it's a little poem-y if, you're, if, you're not, if you don't like these. But I, I love this idea. He says, when fishes flew and forests walked and figs grew upon thorns, some moment when the moon was blood, then surely I was born. So remember, this is the donkey. With monstrous head and sickening cry and ears like errant wings, the devil's walking parody of all four-footed things, the tattered outlaw of the earth, the ancient crooked will, Uh, starved, scourge, deride me, I am dumb. I keep my secrets still, fools. For I had my hour, one far fierce hour and sweet. There was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet. I love that. I don't know why. It really kind of moves me that there's this sort of dumb animal is the very steed on which Jesus rode using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise that there's this little you know animal that's like kind of nothing in man's eyes and yet that's what Jesus uses he uses things that are not the way we think they should be we think it should be like this stately ornate like You know, triumphal entry, right? That there's da 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 da, and it's like it's basically what is around. Like he's using the normal things of the world. Like people are like picking palm branches. You know, they're they're just it's it's normal. It's not like it's of the things of the world that he has created. And I like that. I just, there's something about that that is stately because it's actually the things, you know, you always, it kind of makes you wonder, like in heaven, the things that, you know, are here very, very precious there are very ordinary. Like gold. The streets are made of gold. And we think, whoa, gold. It's like concrete in heaven (laughs) or asphalt in heaven. It's, you know, it's here. It's like of the highest precious, you know, we just had a massive stock market crash, and you know gold is kind of creeping down, right or I mean Brandy I I, could probably tell us what's really really going on there, but but uh, you know it's like it, in, in heaven, these things these commodities they don't change their value they're just it 's like concrete it's asphalt, we have plenty of gold don't worry about that right it's just it's such a different peace and to him I think you know fools like that poem says fools for I also had my hour when our fierce hour and sweet there was a shout about my ears and palms before my feet that there's that to him that's it it's it's good to the donkey that's great he had his great and mighty and glorious hour I love that anyway so by the way Matthew's gospel adds to this account but this took place. This is Matthew 21. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. So this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, saying, and this is what I was telling you before. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, a beast of burden. And I, you know, this is, so this is not just this thing, but it's a, it's a, it is prophetic. It's prophetically Fulfilled in Zach from Zechariah 9-9 and and recounted for in Matthew 21. Charles Spurgeon says this about about this uh, requisition here. He says, What a single singular conjunction of words is here. The Lord and has need. Jesus, without laying aside his sovereignty, has taken a nature full of needs. Yet being in need himself, he was still the Lord and could command his subjects and requisition their property. I think that's, that's great, that God is using, again using in every way, everything that is available to him to accomplish his father's will. So verse 11, he enters Jerusalem, goes into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this ends in, in Mark's gospel a little unceremoniously. It's a little bit like he looks around and leaves. Like, you think, this is like, you know, this is what they had all been waiting for. This is where, you know, this is where Scripture kind of like, dun da dun, dun, dun it gets to the top, right? It gets to this thing where, I'm in Jerusalem, and he looks around and leaves. <laughs> it's, it's, it seems to us a bit weird. Like, why? So let's give a little context to that. So... Let's back up a few uh, thousand years. Solomon is dedicating this very temple that Jesus is walking into centuries earlier and he's commenting on God's house on earth. So this is from 1 Kings chapter 8. And Solomon is sort of almost uh, thinking about, bemusing on, on, on who God is and, and, and this house, this temple that he's built for him. And 1 Kings 8 Uh, Solomon says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, this temple. The place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel, that they may pray towards this place and listen in heaven from your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So, this house, this temple of God, this is not the place where God lives. God lives in the highest of heaven he lives you know everywhere like I think there's just this little moment little unveiling a little bit of like you know Jesus is looking around here and he's seeing this place that is is a sacred and holy place <clears throat> and yet Solomon centuries earlier said you know this kind of house can't contain you you're so much bigger than just this one place but this is a place where you can meet God. And that's been its place in history. And so a little bit later in history, a few hundred years after, or thousand-ish year, hundred, late hundreds of years after that, Malachi later prophesies of this very place. Malachi 3.1 says, says, Behold, I send my messenger, speaking of John the Baptist, by the way, um, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, to this temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is saying, uh, uh, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure this day of coming, and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and a fuller soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring their offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So he it goes on here essentially to speak of us what looks like a temple inspection, kind of, of how it's going. And Jesus doesn't like what he sees, because that's what's happening. It's this, this triumphal, you know, John the Baptist has come. He's the herald of the Christ. He's said Jesus is coming. He's come. Now he's known in full, like he's the Lord, the son of David. He's coming into his temple, you know, the branches of the triumphal entry. He comes into Jerusalem. I think, I believe this is what Malachi 3 talks about, you know, the Lord will suddenly come into his temple. But, you know, who can endure the day of His coming? So, we'll see pieces of that here. It goes on here, and it seems unrelated, but I think we'll find that it's very related. Uh, verse 12, uh, we're back in Mark here. On the following day, so they, he, Jesus leaves the temple. On the following day, when they come from Bethany, He was hungry. And He sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf... He went to see it, and to see if he could find anything on it. And When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, "May no one ever eat fruit from you again." And his disciples heard it. So this is a little bit of a strange thing, because we'll see the kind of the culmination of it after our next chunk of scriptures here. But this this sounds like why would Jesus curse this thing? Um, you know, why would you know? May no one ever eat fruit from you again if it wasn't the season for figs, right? Like, what's kind of the deal with that? How how does that work? Why is he saying that? So Dave Guzik explains this this way. He says, essentially, the tree was a picture of false advertising, having leaves but no figs, Ordinarily, this is not the case, he says, with these fig trees, which normally don't have leaves with, without also having figs. The leaves are a sign, you know, the new green leaves are a sign of the figs coming. But it wasn't the season for figs. It wasn't that the fig tree didn't have figs because it wasn't supposed to. The problem is that it had leaves but didn't have figs. The leaves said, the leaves said, there are figs here, but the figs weren't there. There were many trees with only leaves. They weren't cursed. There were many trees with neither leaves nor fruit, and they weren't cursed. This tree was cursed because it professed to have fruit, but it didn't have it. And this to me this little picture or real life parable it's kind of like a you know it doesn't say that it's a parable but it's sort of a real life version of a parable a teaching with a sort of a story behind it this coupled with the driving out of the money changers is which which is what we will see next here really speaks to that being sort of a real life parable of what's going on with the temple that the temple has become something that it shouldn't it it looks like it's this great religious place where, hey, you can come and meet God, but it had, it, there was no fruit there. There's no actual lasting thing, and that's what we'll see here. Verse 15, they come into Jerusalem... They enter the And he entered the temple, speaking of Jesus actually And began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons And would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple And as he was teaching them and saying to them It is not, is it not written My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations But you have made it a den of robbers So this is kind of like, you know, this is the real Jesus. This is like, you know, we not, you know, he is upset. He's angry. He's, he's righteously justified in this anger because uh, the temple area, the place where people would go and meet God, had become filled, filled with uh, profiteers, people who were working in cooperation with priests and robbing people who would come, worshipers who would come by forcing them to purchase approved Uh, sacrificial animals and currencies and and at inflated prices, like higher than they should be. So every Jewish male had to pay pay a yearly temple tax, an amount equaling about two days wages, or two days pay. And it had to pay in currency from the temple itself. So there'd be money exchangers, uh, they would exchange money into temple at outrageous rates, like two and three and four and five times what they should be. Um, and then those who bought and sold in the temple they would do this in the outer courts of the temple. the only area you know there's the outer courts, the inner courts and then the holy of holies and the, the, the Gentiles could only worship and pray in the outer courts um, and they they sold uh, they kind of made it into a market a marketplace right They made it into this place where you would have to buy your your doves your Objects of, of sacrifice at inflated prices. You couldn't just bring one because it might get like, messed up along the way. And so they would have to, again, buy it there at really inflated prices. So what God intended, intended to be the temple, to be a house of prayer for all nations, they had made it a den of thieves. They, had, they were selling things at, at extraordinarily high prices and preventing people from coming to worship God. So in all of this, uh, the chief priests, verse eighteen, and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking for a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. But when evening came, they went out of the city. So we'll find out shortly in the next few weeks here that this is sort of the last straw with the chief priests and the scribes, and we'll we'll see that later on. and We'll get to that. So verse twenty. So as they passed by in the morning, so the next day, so they, you know, they he had come into the temple. Uh, he remember he'd cursed the fig tree. They come into the temple. He turns over the tables. Now it's the next day, verse 20. They passed by in the morning. They saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, that fig tree that you cursed is completely withered. Now, by the way, this is Jesus' only destructive miracle. Everything else he's done has been constructive. Like he's, you know, food has appeared, People's, people have risen from the dead. Uh, everything else has been constructive. This is the only destructive miracle. And I don't have a lot to say on, on that other than that his total authority over nature. That, that in, in, in reality, like even when the weather kind of calms when they're out on the, on the Galilean Sea, that all of that, this is the only thing that he does that is kind of withering something away. So Jesus answered them. Uh, verse 22. So, you know, the picture you've cursed is it's withered. So Jesus answers him Have faith in God. And that actually translates a little bit differently in, in, in the um, Greek. It's actually more like Have God's faith, have the faith that God has. Um, truly I say to you, whoever sees, says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So this is this teaching moment here for Jesus. Um, that faith in God, that having God's faith is the key to all obstacles, big and small. That everything in our lives that we would face that would be of trouble and like trial and tribulation, that, that faith in God, that trusting in Him in all things is the key, is the answer to all these things. You know, also here, I think what this makes clear and many other scriptures makes clear is that we're never to put... Um, Ministry in any way ahead of having good relationships. And I think that might be something that's like a little bit sideways to the way we think. But I think it's interesting here that Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. Um, for if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So if you're standing praying, if you're like, you know, Lord, do this and help that and fix this and do those things, if, if you want to stand before God and ask him for things, you have essentially this requirement on you that you have to forgive people because you need forgiveness. And I think that that's first. I think, you, I think take Jesus at his word. If you're going to pray, you better forgive first because we need to be forgiven by God. Just this morning, uh, I, I was asking uh, Jen to help me iron something and she didn't want to do it. And I kind of got mad at her. We had this little argument this morning. And she comes in here and she, this morning, just a few hours ago, and, and asked, oh, you know, sorry, will you forgive me? And I was like, I don't want to forgive you. I, you know, I, I, it's funny how, like, I, like there's this thing when, when people, you're perceiving a wrong against you. There's there is it is in, inbuilt in every single person to not want to forgive, no matter the how big it is or how small it is. It doesn't matter. You your pride, my pride does not want to forgive. It doesn't want to do it. We need forgiveness. It's this it's this I think I think what it is is it's an order. We understand this in every other area of our lives. But here we need a reminder, your car will not move without gasoline in it, period, right? It won't move. Like no one's like, I mean, I, what's the deal with this? But our prayers won't go anywhere without forgiveness. Like there's an order here. There, you know, your prayers need forgiveness to move. Our car needs gas to move. And I think, why is it that, you know, we understand that in every transaction of our lives, but this one thing, we won't acknowledge that we need forgiveness from God and we need to forgive. Otherwise, why, why, why does, you know, does God answer our prayers without this? I mean, he seems to make it pretty clear when you stand praying, you first forgive, like that's on you. <laughs> You've got to do that because you need that too. I I just think there's this order to it that we understand in every other area of life, except for this one. We we don't see, we don't hear, we don't know, we don't want. Our pride puts it first. Verse 27, they come again to Jerusalem. As he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? There's this question. Jesus says to them, I'll a- a- ask you one question, and you answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man answer me? Now here's this thing. You know, Jesus, you know, he had done all those miracles. They didn't like it. Right? It comes to this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's doing, you know, he, everybody, like the whole place lays down the palm branches. It's this huge ceremony thing comes in. He turns over the the money changers' tables. He does this thing with this fig tree. And they finally, you know, it's like, by what authority are you doing these things? And I think Jesus' question of them is fascinating to me. He's saying, okay, you want to know by what authority? Let me ask you this question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, this is an interesting thought. Because one, and I think we, we now take this for granted. Like, baptism now, for, for centuries, we, you know, we all, I think, know what baptism is. You know, it's this immersion in water, and you come up, and you're, it's a symbolizing of a new man, right? Well, at this point in history, that wasn't the case. Number one, John was not a priest, and there's no baptism then as we know of it now. So there was tons of Levitical ceremonial washings. There was plenty of like, you wash your hands this way, and you wash your hands this way. There's all sorts of ceremonial washings. But nobody had done baptism like John had. No one had taken unclean water like streams and rivers and lakes. You know, Jordan rivers where a lot of people and it's not necessarily the cleanest water. You know, it does flow. Maybe it's clean. I don't, I don't know. But he was doing things outside of the political and religious normal thing. Like, if we had taken something today, like, I, you know, I don't even know, uh, worship, you know, we, like, we have this tradition of worship music. We have piano and guitar and bass and drums, and, and you know, even take it back a, a, a century. It's no guitar and drums. It's just piano. Take it back. It's like harps. You know, it, it, we have these traditions of what worship music is. Well, what if somebody took, like, I don't even know, like a saw and like a chainsaw, you know, all sorts of other things, and said, this is worship now. That's what John had done. He took something that was not on the scene at all and made it something that's a part of the tradition. So he's saying here, he's not talking about sort of the ministry of John that he's gathering people, doing these things, but this baptism, this one thing that is not a ritual that they would understand at all. And he's saying, was that from, from heaven or from man, right? What do you think of this innovation of John's? Um, he's simplifying, Jesus this is, is, simplifying the issue, clearing away all sort of non-essentials. All authority comes either from God or from men, I, I believe. There are no other authorities. We're either trying to please God and obey Him, being you know, responsive to truth that God reveals and responsible to his power or trying to please men, manipulate them and use them to try to gain something from them. So they discuss it with each other, verse 31, and they say, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people because they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered, Jesus, we don't know. And I think it's so telling of so much of what goes on. You know, we... It's hard to look at something and be like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't know if what they're telling is this news says this, this news says that the, you know, this outlet says this, this outlet says that. I don't know. It's it's so easy to to just give up. But I think that's the thing that Jesus is saying here. Authority, all authority comes from God. All all of it. Every last bit of it comes from him. And he doles it out. And, you know, people misuse authority. Right. Doesn't mean it's not authority. These people misuse it and mistreat it and misdo it. Miss, you know, they don't treat it as they should. But but this baptism of John, I think he's saying here. I believe he's saying here that it, this is from God because all authority comes from God. Even when people mistreat it and misuse it, it comes from him. You know, here uh, Jesus says to them, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. They rejected John. Right. They rejected John and his authority. And now here they're rejecting Jesus and his authority. So it's 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 a essentially sort of a double rejection because Jesus puts before him this baptism of John that 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 is by what authority by God himself, by Jesus Christ, who, you know, comes in triumphantly into Jerusalem this week. But by the following week, he's going to be murdered, be killed and, and um, on behalf of you, and I think it just reminds me back of that verse that I was sharing in Hebrews 10. Um, that at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while, who is made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And it was fitting that he... For whom and by whom all things exi- exist, and bringing many sons to glory, that it should be the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering.